You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. A phishing campaign impersonates DHL. Conscription and mobilization provide criminals with fish bait for Russian victims. Norton LifeLock advises customers that their accounts may have been compromised. Trends in data protection. Veracode's report on the state of software application security. Ben Yellen looks at NSO Group's attempt at state sovereignty. Ann Johnson from Afternoon Cyber Tea speaks with Microsoft's Chris Young about the importance of the security ecosystem. And Ukraine calls for a digital United Nations. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. Happy Tuesday, everyone. Good to have you along with us here again today. Armor Blocks describes a phishing campaign that's using phony shipping invoices that purport to come from DHL. The campaign targeted an organization in the education sector with more than 100,000 emails. The fish hook in the email is contained in an Excel document which, when opened, will display a blurred-out preview of an invoice. The user will then be asked to enter their Microsoft account login credentials in order to view the invoice. The researchers note that the emails were able to bypass email security filters since they don't contain any malicious links. The general approach is familiar. First, impersonate a well-known and trusted brand using a convincing copy of that brand's logo and other branding elements. Second, use a single simple call to action that's likely to involve something the recipient will care about, payment issues, account suspension, or in this case, getting that parcel you were expecting. It's easy as the world watches Russia's hybrid war in Ukraine and in the narrower cyber phases of that war to see the contribution criminal gangs are making as auxiliaries of Russia's intelligence and security services to forget that more ordinary cybercrime persists. And moreover, Russians themselves can also be its victim. TASS reports, citing information provided by Kaspersky, that criminals are using Russian mobilization and conscription plans 
as an occasion for social engineering attacks against Russian victims. The goal appears to be theft of Telegram accounts. The report states, Scammers steal Telegram user accounts using a phishing mailing list with an offer to get acquainted with a fake list of people who will allegedly be sent for mobilization on February 1st through the 3rd, 2023, the channel specifies. If the mark follows the link, they'll be directed to a credential theft site. As Medusa's coverage in its English-language edition suggests, the emotions being exploited are anxiety, worry, and fear— The phishing messages promise to send you to a site that will let you know whether you or a loved one is on the list of those scheduled to be summoned for military service next month. Norton LifeLock's corporate parent, Gen Digital, has warned some customers that their accounts may have been compromised. Bleeping Computer quotes Gen Digital's letter to customers as saying, Our own systems were not compromised. However, we strongly believe that an unauthorized third party knows and has utilized your username and password for your account. The incident appears to have been the result of a credential stuffing campaign detected in mid-December when an unusually large volume of failed logins were detected on the 12th. Norton LifeLock warns, In accessing your account with your username and password, the unauthorized third party may have viewed your first name, last name, phone number, and mailing address. In a Saturday update provided to Bleeping Computer, Gen Digital said it was alerting customers to suspicious login attempts and helping them secure their accounts, stating, Gen's family of brands offers products and services to approximately 500 million users. We have secured 925,000 inactive and active accounts that may have been targeted by credential stuffing attacks. This is the second incident involving identity and access management services to come to light this month, the first being issues affecting LastPass users. The benefits of using a password manager remain, but they're not a panacea, and they have to be used with proper care. Secure backup and recovery provider Veeam released their 2023 Data Protection Trends Report this morning, which surveyed 4,200 IT professionals on data protection drivers, challenges, and strategies. Hybrid IT remains common, balancing physical servers in data centers and cloud-hosted servers. Ransomware has been a pervasive issue that will continue steadily into 2023. And increasingly, data security is cloud security. Cloud dependence continues to grow, with 80% anticipating the use of backup-as-a-service or disaster-recovery-as-a-service for server protection over the next two years. Researchers at Orca Security discovered four server-side request forgery vulnerabilities affecting Microsoft Azure instances, two of which could be exploited without authentication. Microsoft has since patched the flaws. The affected services were Azure API Management, Azure Functions, Azure Machine Learning, and Azure Digital Twins. All four of the flaws were non-blind SSRF vulnerabilities, which could allow an attacker to scan local ports, find new services, endpoints, and files, providing valuable information on possibly vulnerable servers and services to exploit for initial entry and the location of potential information to target. Veracode has published a report on software application security, finding that 69% of applications have at least one OWASP top 10 flaw. Around 4 out of 5 programs written in .NET and Java 
have at least one flaw, while just over half of JavaScript applications contain a flaw. Finally, Ukraine is calling for the formation of a digital United Nations. Yuri Shachil, who leads Ukraine's state service of special communications and information protection, told Politico, We need the Cyber United Nations, nations united in cyberspace, in order to protect ourselves, effectively protect our world for the future, the cyber world, and our real conventional world. What we really need in this situation is a hub or a venue where we can exchange information, support each other, and interact. The goal of such an organization would be international threat information sharing and preparation to withstand cyber attacks. The metaphor is probably wayward. The United Nations, after all, seeks to include all states, and the proposed organization would of necessity leave those who are bad actors out. And make no mistake about it, Russia, Ukraine is looking at you, and so are the members of NATO and any number of other countries. The proposal really represents a gesture in the direction of an alliance than it does a comprehensive global association. In any case, international threats would seem to call for some form of international cooperative defense. Coming up after the break, Ben Yellen looks at NSO Group's attempt at state sovereignty. Ann Johnson from Afternoon Cyber Tea speaks with Microsoft's Chris Young about the importance of the security ecosystem. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
Microsoft's Ann Johnson is host of the Afternoon Cyber Tea podcast. And on a recent episode, she spoke with Microsoft's Chris Young about the importance of the security ecosystem. Here's part of that conversation. Speaking of partnerships, let's uh, let's go to our core job, what you and I uh, do daily. So you have this fairly large remit where you think about business development, you're thinking about the company's strategy all up, and of course you lead you know the ventures team with Michelle Gonzalez. But I want to focus for just a minute about ecosystem and why you think ecosystem is important, even for a company like Microsoft. And why do you think it's so important for the security ecosystem to exist and help our customers and our partners? No company can solve all the problems themselves. You know, number one, I think, and that's true in any space. I think it's especially true in security. Like nobody's got 100% of the solution Partially just because, you know, security is a living, breathing problem. It changes all the time. It changes faster, I'd argue, than other elements of the technology landscape. And that's one of the reasons why ecosystem work is super critical to security. Because as much as we can do at Microsoft, you know, we have a lot of great products and a lot of great solutions that we apply to helping our customers solve some of their their thorniest cyber challenges— We don't cover the entire landscape, every use case, every platform, every threat mitigation technique. And so ecosystems are critically important because there's there are a lot of great companies out there that that can help us cover the use cases that are most important to our customers. And therefore, the ecosystem creation and the orchestration of the ecosystem in ways that makes it come together in service of the customer's need, which is ultimately to deliver their business or deliver their outcomes in a secure, efficient, effective way. That's really what's most important. And as you point out, Anne, that's such a huge part of our role inside of Microsoft is to to be the orchestrator of these ecosystems, to bring companies together from outside of Microsoft, with all the great people here inside of Microsoft who are trying to solve these problems on behalf of our customers and then to help our customers get the most out of the ecosystems themselves. It's hard, right? Because, you know, we all know some of the classic challenges that people face in cyber, you know, a lot of vendors, a lot of stitched together solutions. You know, part of our goal in these ecosystem programs is to make it feel more seamless, to take take some of the burden off of our customers so they don't have to do all the heavy lifting of, of bringing together some of the different solutions they need to ultimately solve their problems. So why is it your view that it's so important to have this vibrant security startup community? Startups are, they're the lifeblood, I think, of our, of our industry. I think that's true in broader tech. And they're also, it's also true if you double-click down into cybersecurity and the reason is they, they move us forward. Here's, here's a good example. I, I talk about this. I used to talk about this all the time, which is, you know, if I think about just take endpoint security until companies like Silence and CrowdStrike came along, a lot of the endpoint security industry was, it was AV signature based. And in today's world, we've all moved on. Why? Because innovation happened. It didn't happen in the big companies. It happened in the startup landscape. Happened to be a bunch of McAfee alums that went out and did it. 
you could argue about, you know, the outcomes of the companies. You know, obviously CrowdStrike has done really well. Uh, we don't see Silence as much anymore. They're part of BlackBerry. But they push the industry forward in a unique way. And I think we're all better off for it. You can hear the rest of this conversation along with all of the episodes of Afternoon Cyber Tea on our website, thecyberwire.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Welcome back, Ben. Thank you for having me, Dave. Uh, So article over on the IEEE Spectrum website, and this is about uh, a class action suit that's being brought against GitHub Copilot and uh, their parent company, Microsoft, about uh, these claims that uh, these AI engines are basically pirating open source software. What do you make of this, Ben? So this is really fascinating. Uh, We have an issue here that I think is novel and extremely complicated. Hmm. Um, So Copilot, as as probably most of our listeners uh, would know, is an AI pair programmer for software developers. Mm -hmm. It suggests code in real time. uh, But the input is at least uh, as alleged here, copyrighted material. Somebody has actually developed the code that goes into the system uh, that leads to Copilot spitting out suggested code. Mm -hmm. This is open source software as well. Uh, So obviously the vision of open source is that uh, anybody can use it and access it. Uh, But there are individuals, and that's the nature of this lawsuit, who think that their own creative work in developing these lines of code is being used without attribution, and eventually, um, if somebody uses the output from Copilot to make a profit, that's going to be a violation of our intellectual property laws. Hmm. There's another side to this story, though, uh, and I think that's best articulated by Kit Walsh, a staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And Kit argues that training Copilot on public repositories is fair use. Fair use allows for the analytical use of copyrighted work. So for academic purposes, for learning purposes, the question here is whether this counts as fair use uh, under our intellectual property laws. Uh, What Kit is saying is that Copilot is ingesting code and creating associations in its own neural net about what tends to follow and appear in what contexts. Right. And that is sort of doing analytical, that's the equivalent of doing analytical work on somebody else's Copyright-protected material. Yeah. Um, Really, this could boil down to how much Copilot is reproducing from any given iota, any element of the training data that that was used as input. And that's something that's somewhat metaphysical. We might not know exactly how much of the suggested code comes from a distinct uh, piece of data that somebody else's copyrighted work. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is a really complicated issue. I'm not sure we're going to get a satisfying resolution uh, for a long time, but I can understand why people who have poured their heart and mind into developing lines of code would be upset by it being used potentially to to, uh, profit somebody else without attribution. Yeah. It strikes me that at the core of this is is whether or not an AI system can express creativity. 
And is, is it, if, if you're able to input things and it's able to come up with novel solutions based on inspiration from other people's work, to me, that's new work. As opposed to just cutting and pasting uh, some lines of code. That seems pretty clear cut to me. Right. If you find, uh, you know, some code that you had put in your book about programming in whatever language and the AI takes it and just pastes it in there and doesn't even change any of the variables, well, we've got an issue here. But if the AI is inspired by the code you write, I, as you say, that's a lot fuzzier in my mind. And can an AI even be inspired? Is that a thing? Right. <laughs> uh, because unlike us, you know, you used an example on, on Caveat where we talked about this as well, mm. of going to an art museum, being inspired by Picasso or whomever, mm-hmm. and going home and, and coming up with your own painting inspired by his work, even mm-hmm. though it's unattributed. Right. And that's a really interesting metaphor, but in that case, you're using your own creativity. Uh, You are using the contents of your own mind to turn the inspiration from somebody else into your own distinct creative work. Mm -hmm. And is that happening with uh, artificial intelligence? It's a hard question to answer. Mm -hmm. Um, Can a computer have creativity? Or are they just resuscitate, or or, or are they just digesting pieces of information and spitting them out uh, algorithmically? It's it's something that I don't think is clearly answerable. Well, I think we all need to go back and watch the Star Trek: The Next Generation episode, "Measure of a Man," where Lieutenant Commander Data <laughs> is put on trial uh, as to whether or not, as a computer. Uh, he has the rights of a human being. I think it's all pretty well laid out. There. Maybe you and I can turn that into like a one-act <laughs> play where we just do that scene and we have attorneys on each side mm-hmm. uh, arguing the best uh, <laughs> the best arguments on behalf of their clients. Yeah, I, I sense that's a, a good creative work uh, in, in our future. Yeah. All right. Well, this one, uh, more to come for sure as, as this develops, and I find it fascinating. Uh, ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 
We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.